How are you out there? Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's get there this morning. We had fun in first service. Well, at least the preacher had fun. I don't know if anybody else had fun. Verse 15 of chapter 5 of where we're going to start today. I'm going to thank God for the word and continuing in our series here out of Ephesians 5 as Paul lays down a blueprint for Christian conduct. Remember, how we behave matters because people are looking at us deciding what they think about Jesus. Now you say, well, I never asked for that. No, but it comes with the territory because we're ambassadors for Christ. Amen. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you for the word this morning. We thank you for Ephesians chapter 5. We thank you that our conduct matters, our worldview matters, the words of our mouth matter. And Father, we approach this morning with an open heart for you to speak to us. Let these principles come alive this morning. Let them challenge us to stretch us and grow uh, where we need to grow. Father, to be encouraged, Lord, in all these things we ask that we would not be hearers only, but doers of the word. That's our purpose this morning, not just to hear, but to do. So Holy Spirit, begin that work in our heart even now as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read verse 15, and then our target text will be verses 18 through 20. Uh, You'll recognize it when you hear it. Therefore, be careful. Anybody being careful out there? We talked about being careful. You you living loose and sloppy, or are you being careful? Three people being careful. The rest of you are just smiling at me. I know I'm good looking, but, you know, look away and come up with an answer. Therefore, be careful. My wife is laughing at that. Why are you laughing? Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Listen to verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, saying and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now listen to those three verses again, starting in verse 18. Should be familiar to you. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So powerful verses today, and as we continue in the blueprint here, uh, the apostle just dealing with some issues that are common to man. It should come as no surprise to us today that drunkenness is both a sin and completely inconsistent with holy Christian living. I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to you. Even people who are not in the church, who are not in relationship with Christ, when they become drunk, they realize it's a lowly state, it's shameful, they do and say things that they wouldn't normally do when they are sober, and sometimes they leave the party and think, you know, what did I do, what did I say? It's a scary way to live. So as Christians, we should, we should get this, it shouldn't be a hard sell this morning, that drunkenness is both a sin and it's completely inconsistent with holy Christian living. The Bible explains and warns us many times about drunkenness and being overcome uh, with any kind of intoxicant to the point where we have lost control. You know, the only one that should control our members is the Holy Spirit. 
when you're out of control of your body, when you're out of control of your mouth, anyone ever been out of control of their mouth? Every day, as soon as you wake up, amen? I mean, being out of control of a part of you is a scary thing. So the Bible explicitly warns against overindulgence in wine and alcohol and all these things. And it says really plainly in several places that drunkards won't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when you think about something in the word of God warning you that, hey, pay attention. If you do this, you disqualify yourself from going to heaven. How many, how many would admit that gets my, that gets my attention? I don't want to get there, and my name's not on the list. Hello? Mr. Leonardi, we don't seem to have a reservation for you. That's not the day I was hoping to have when my heart stops, amen? I wanted to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But the scripture says some of these behaviors here that, look, if you do these things and you, not if you ever done them once, not if you ever cross the line, not if you mess up here and there, but if you practice these things as a lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Our generation hates this because it's absolute and it defies the culture, but it's the word of God. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, you don't need a degree in, in the Bible. You don't have to have a doctorate in Scripture. You don't need to know Greek and Hebrew to hear everything that just was said there is plain for us to understand. So give me an Amen. Whether we like it or not, whether it rubs against the culture or not, it's what the word of God says. And more and more, people just want to get away from absolutes. Well, I can live loose, and I can do whatever I want, and I can call myself a Christian, and as long as I'm not as bad as Hitler, I'll make it into heaven. That seems to be the litmus test, amen? As long as you're not a Nazi or Hitler or, you know, somebody who did really bad stuff in history, you're going to squeak in. It's not what the Bible teaches. It says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So drunkards are on the list. Now, that's people who drink excessively, who are constantly drunk. It's a pattern. Maybe it's every weekend. Maybe it's every night after work. But they have no desire to stop. Do you notice that when Christians struggle with a sin, we struggle with a sin, and we want to stop? When you're, when you're in the world, you don't want to stop. You want to, well, when's the next party? When's the next kegger? When, when are we, is it Oktoberfest? Let's go here. Come on, don't look at me like you're so holy. Like, we, we don't even know what you're talking about. The, the world has no desire to stop. See, the Christian doesn't make these things a, a lifestyle. And those who are, you know, perpetually in a situation, to see a person that is perpetually intoxicated is such a sad, sad thing. It, it, it pulls away their human dignity. It, 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 it just, I've, I've sat with, I've sat with drunkards in the gutters of New York City doing ministry there, just soaked in their own urine, laying next to a bottle of alcohol that was empty, talking to them about, how did you get here? Sad stories. Drunkenness dehumanizes a person, takes away their dignity. Talking about people who practice it as a lifestyle. Maybe, you know, you're just a party or you're a functioning drunk, but you have no desire to stop. You won't repent. If that's the condition of a person's soul, the Bible warns they are in serious danger of eternal judgment. Why? Because it's practicing unrighteousness to the point where it's a lifestyle. Repentance is not even sought after. And God says you will not inherit the kingdom of God if that's your lifestyle. Now, 
As bad as drunkenness is all by itself, it's rarely the only sin that occurs once a person becomes intoxicated. See, if you just got intoxicated and you got drunk, that's a sin enough, but rarely does it stop there. You see, it usually leads to many other sins. People do and say things drunk that they would never do sober. Come on, don't clam up on me now. It's the word of God here today. You look so serious. He's like, he's trying to trick us to trap us. I'm just laying it out here today. People do and say things when they're intoxicated that they would never do sober. That's why drunkenness is shown in Scripture as a gateway sin. It leads to many, many other sins. Noah, the only man on earth that God didn't drown in the flood, the only righteous man, Noah and his family, get on the ark and they're saved. Woo! The cream of the crop, Noah. He gets off the ark. He plants a vineyard. He makes grapes. He makes wine. He gets drunk and he's exposed naked in front of his family. This was the best of mankind. Think about that. That means all of us have the capacity to sin. He's so drunk, his sons go in, and one tries to uncover him, and makes a ham makes a shame out of him in a public display, and his other sons cover him. And there's a curse that comes on Ham because he uncovered his father's nakedness. And there's all this nonsense that goes on in Genesis chapter 9. And it's all because a godly man gave in to his flesh and became intoxicated, and sin was compounded. Drunkenness leads to perversion. Lot's daughters got him so drunk when they escaped Sodom and Gomorrah, they thought there was no men left on earth. So they got their father so drunk, both of them conceived through incest by their own father and had children. Those children produced an incest became uh, the, the, the Moabites and the Ammonites. You know, those two groups of people were a thorn in Israel's side all the days of Israel. The production of incest because of drunkenness. Drunkenness leads to all kinds of violence. Proverbs 21 says, you know, strong drink is a mocker. It's a brawler. Uh, What is that brawling component? It's the fact that some people get drunk and they get violent. It leads to all kinds of fights in bars and in public. It leads to spousal abuse. It leads to child abuse. Hello today. The Bible shows drunkenness is a gateway sin. It it fuels sexual immorality. Habakkuk 2.16, Lamentations 4.21, talk about people uncovering their nakedness and and, and exposing themselves in public. Why? To inflame sexual immorality. Drunkenness causes people to say all kinds of mean and hurtful things that they would never say sober. And on and on it goes. Drunkenness causes disease in the body, cirrhosis of the liver. It causes harm to our physical man. It kills multitudes every year in car accidents. It perverts justice. It impairs judgment. It squanders people's potential. Leads to incarceration, adultery, divorce, abuse, and perversion. Drunkenness has no place in the life of a child of God. Whew. Now that I got that off my chest. So it's a gateway sin. The Bible in our scripture here in Ephesians 5 calls it dissipation. Be not drunk with wine, which is what? Dissipation. What does that mean? Dissipation is excessive indulgence. It's indulging in something so excessively you become intoxicated. You become inebriated. You've crossed the line. You're not in control anymore. It's talking about this dissipation and and the sinfulness of it. Now, we... We can all agree after everything I just said that drunkenness has no place in the life of a Christian. Can, can I get enough amens on that to move on? Okay. It was a hard sell, but 
Well, while we can agree that the Bible teaches that, that, you know, drunkenness has no place in the life of a Christian, we must also agree that the Bible never says thou shall not drink. As much as some people would like it to say that, you know, it'd be easier for preachers if we could find a verse like that. You could find verses where it warns against it and winds a mocker and strong, but it never says thou shall not drink. And the truth is that all of the, uh, our forefathers, that great cloud of witnesses, all of them drank wine. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of them. The Jews use wine in all of their feasts. It's part of the Passover. David drank wine. The priests drank wine. The prophets all drank wine. Then we get to the New Testament. You'll say, surely in the New Testament, it's prohibition, right? No. The disciples all drank wine. Jesus used wine at the Passover. The apostle Paul drank wine. He told Timothy, take a little for your stomach. There's medicinal values for it. It's a symbol of blessing in the Old Testament. The truth is that Jesus himself drank wine. And if it was even remotely a sin to do that, Jesus would have never done it. Now, all the winos are happy now, but... Let me just say something here. I'm going to tell you what the word says and what it doesn't say, and I'm not going to make it say what I want it to say. It doesn't say thou shalt not drink. The Bible uses wine as a symbol of blessing. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, the new wine is going to be poured out in eternity. We're going to drink that heavenly wine with Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, I will not taste of the fruit of the vine, that's wine again, until I'm in my kingdom, okay? So there's all these components that we can't ignore. No, it wasn't grape juice in the Old Testament. The same word in Hebrew and Greek that talks about being drunk is not, you know, it's, you can't get drunk on grape juice. You get five bottles of Welch's grape juice today and you drink them, come see me. You'll have an epic bellyache, but you'll be stone cold sober. Okay, so having said all of that, I want to close this topic by saying two things. If you cannot use alcohol with discipline and moderation, you must abstain, period. Well, every once in a while I cross the line, wrong. You're playing Russian roulette with your soul. If you can't use it in moderate, if you never even have the temptation to exceed, then you must abstain. You say, Pastor, I, you know, I want to push the line. You're playing with your soul. The Bible says, look, look, this is the intoxicating, alluring nature of it. it. It's a sneaky thing. It's a tricky thing. Some people can't handle it, and we must abstain if we cannot. Some of us have come out of alcoholic families, out of alcoholic past. Some of us, you know, we've come out of 12-step programs. Don't dare go back to that and say, well, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to give it a spin again. You're playing Russian roulette with your soul. If you can't use it in moderation, you must abstain. And number two, if you have the liberty and you can use it in moderation, you should never let your liberty, let your brother or sister stumble. Well, look at me. I can, you know, I can do this and I can do that. And you know their past and you know what they've come from. And you put it out there and they see you doing it and they figure they can do it. And then what happens? Got to be careful with our liberties. The word tells us that we're better off foregoing our liberties than making others stumble. So understand uh, there is... You know, what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. And then understand moderation and abstinence and all these things are good things for us to entertain on an individual, individual basis. The Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Anything that can keep you out of heaven should be approached with a little bit of fear and a little bit of trembling. Say amen, Pastor. Okay. So... Our text addresses another important issue when it comes to too much wine, and that's this. Why would a Christian find themselves in a place where they need to drink too much wine? 
It's a great question, isn't it? Why the vacuum in our soul? If we're born again, if we're in relationship with the Father, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, why would we need to drink too much wine? Well, verse 18 gives us the clue here to what the main reason is. The main reason is it says, be not drunk with wine, what? because that's dissipation, it's overindulgence, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ah, there it is. Too much wine is a sign that we have not enough of the Holy Ghost. Come on, you're way too quiet. Come on. Too much wine is a sign that we don't have enough of the Holy Spirit. When you're filled in the Spirit and you're walking in the Spirit and you're about the things of the Spirit, you don't need to fill yourself overly with wine to, to take away the stings and the pains and the, and the bumps and the bruises of life. My goodness. So I appreciate you forcing yourself to clap. Too much wine is a sign of not enough of the Holy Spirit. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, listen, there's no high like the most high. Come on. There's, no, there's nothing that we can put inside our, man, one, one whiff of his presence, one word from his throne, one encounter with his spirit. Come on. There's nothing like it. If, if you're having a problem with too much wine, you need to get more of the Holy Spirit, and that will turn the tables on the situation in your life. That's why these two things are linked together. Don't be drunk with wine. That's dissipation. But there it is, the other side. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what we've got to get. And I want you to understand something. Wine is just too easy. Here's what I mean about that. You can be doing everything wrong, have a million problems that you've created, all your relationships could be bad, and you drink, you feel good, and you escape for a little while. I'm just being real with you on Sunday morning here. And people do that all the time because it's easy. I'm in pain. I don't know how to deal with the pain. I numb the pain. You numb it for a short time, and when you come out from under the intoxicating numbness of it, the pain is still there, and it's usually worse because now you estrange yourself from God. Wine is too easy. Having the peace and joy that comes from the Holy Spirit is not as easy. You must do the right things. You must be in right relationship with Jesus Christ. You must have a relationship with God and be right with God and man. You got to walk in integrity and personal holiness, and then you can walk in the Holy Spirit. Do you see how much harder that is than just taking in some wine? And people settle for the easy way, the cheap counterfeit substitute. That's all intoxication is. It's a cheap counterfeit substitute for the joy and the peace and the thrill of being filled with the Holy Spirit. As believers, you and I should be trying to eliminate everything in our lives that we're dependent on other than the Lord. Let me say that again. As believers, you and I should be trying to eliminate our dependence on anything other than God. If anything there is in my life that gives me purpose and peace and contentment, and, and I run to it before I run to God, it's got to be eliminated. He's got to be Lord of all, or he can't be Lord at all. He's got to sit firmly on the throne of our heart. Come on. And if there are things between us and him, they've got to go. So if that's our mission to eliminate anything we have dependence on, we need to take a look, whether it's alcohol, which our text is talking about today, or drugs, 
you know, pop the pill, make yourself feel good. We have such a problem with pharmaceutical uh, drugs today, people taking uh, drugs, illegal drugs, trying to make drugs legal just to, you know, so people can be out of their minds for a little while so they can deal with life when the Holy Spirit will replace the need for all of that and give us the peace of God that passes all understanding. People run to their bad habits or, or, or unhealthy relationships. Or how about food? Now, this is where I usually lose everybody. Yeah, pastor, that drugs and alcohol, that's bad. But did he just say food? Some of us, man, it's food. You, I've seen people, you touch their food, that you being, you, you'll draw back a nub. You know, and it's just crazy how we use that as a substitute. And food, listen, food can change your mood. That's why they call it comfort food. It has effects, physiological effects on the body. Now, it's not as, it's not as powerful as alcohol or drugs, but it, in some ways, food can be a drug. Do you know we're addicted to sugar? You take sugar away from people, they look like a meth head in like two days. Some of us would never hang out with Jack Daniels, but we're really good friends with little Debbie. Yeah, oh, well, I would never do that. But the, the stuff that we eat as Christians, our body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, I hope I'm ticking everybody off. If I'm missing you, look, I'm working hard. I'll get to you, okay? But, you know, that comfort food, man, the, you, you, you know, you got the Burger King on speed dial. He sends you a Christmas card. Thank you for your support. Ronald McDonald's, you know, Facebook pals. Get filled and stay filled with the Holy Spirit, and we won't need any of those other things to make up for the lack in our hearts. Amen? So you might say, all right, well, the next question has to be, well, how do I get filled and stay filled with the Holy Spirit? I'm so glad you asked. First, you've got to be born again. You've got to be in right relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, you know, I don't believe in God or the, whole, or the Holy Spirit, but, you know, uh, you know, I'm filled with some sort of spirit. Yeah, you are. You've got to be in right relationship with the Father. That means you have to be in Christ. I mean, the Bible says, believe and be baptized and you shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen. When we believe, that signifies repentance. We, we, we believe what? That Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. We repent of our sins. We become in right relationship with him. Then we're baptized in water, identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Then we come up out of that water, walking in resurrection power, filled with the Holy Spirit so we can be different. So we don't need to fill ourselves with wine because we're filled with the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Half an amen on that one. Pastor, are you saying being filled with the Holy Spirit will keep us from being dependent on other things? Absolutely, I am, because it's what the Bible teaches. Now, our next two verses, 19 and 20, give us two keys to getting and staying filled with the Holy Ghost. The first is in verse 19. Listen to this. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. If you want to get filled and stay filled with the Holy Spirit, once you're born again, once you're in Christ, you and I need to learn to create a life that is in a spiritually rich atmosphere. Do you know why our bodies can do such amazing things on planet Earth? Because we're in an oxygen-rich atmosphere. If there was no oxygen in our environment, if I put you on a planet that didn't have an atmosphere, that didn't have oxygen, you would like, be like a fish out of water flopping around and you would die. Everybody get that? 
So the reason we can function on earth, look at what the human body can do when it has enough oxygen. It's amazing. Athletes that, you know, they're, they're young and they're strong and they're powerful and they're, they breathe in that air and, and oxygen allows us to run and jump and do all of those things. Come on, old people, remember running and jumping? Amen. Man, if the house was on fire, I'm not sure I would run. Athletes have had problems with trying to you know, make their bodies perform better by doing what's called blood doping, where they would receive a transfusion of oxygenated blood right into their body so that before they ran a race or did a, you know, some sort of athletic event, they would have all this oxygenated blood available and it would actually increase their performance. It's a performance enhancer. Some famous athletes have been busted for that and banned. And so, you know, this idea of oxygen and the atmosphere we live in allowing our bodies to do amazing things is a solid scientific physiological principle. But do you know that many of us don't function spiritually the way God intended for us to function? And the reason we don't is because we're not in the right spiritual atmosphere. Our text reminds us Unlike the physical atmosphere that God made for us, we have a part to play in creating the right spiritual atmosphere for us to live in. What does the text say? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Stop. What does that do? When you and I speak to one another, we encourage one another in the Lord. We build each other up. We create a different atmosphere. How? By our praise and our worship. Amen. You and I have a duty to play in that. We don't just wake up in the morning, like, we don't just wake up in the morning and say, well, you know, I have to prepare the house so I can breathe. Anybody? Any weirdos out there that forgot your medication? No. We don't do that. We just wake up, breathe. Woo. But we have a part to play in creating the right spiritual atmosphere for us to flourish in. We've got to sing this song. We've got to put the worship music on. We've got to get in the word. Come on. We've got to create the environment. Why? Because the world we live in is fallen and it's evil. And we have to redeem the times. And part of our job as Christians is create the right environment for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in the Holy Spirit. Listen, praise and worship is our weapon this morning. If you're not a worshiper, you're going out there unarmed every day. You and I could be in dark places. We could be anxious, exhausted, depressed, even sick. And then we turn on some anointed worship music and boom, the spiritual atmosphere completely changes. That's the power of praise. Look, if you can come into the sanctuary while the worship team is playing and we're all singing together and you can still be a zombie, you're dead. You need some Holy Ghost jumper cables. You're part of the frozen chosen. Wake up. I don't know how people could stand in word. I mean, I don't know. You see new people come in and they're getting used to it. You know, like the first week they're like this. The next week they're like, next week, two hands, two hands, two hands. Before you know it, woo, lost in his presence, amen. Come on, get in the river, jump in the water. <laughs> Amen, but I, I get it, I understand, but the presence of God, uh, worship is a powerful thing. Our praise is a weapon. We, we could be depressed. You know, Christians get depressed. David said, why so downcast, oh my soul? But David was a worshiper. He knew how to encourage himself in the Lord, amen? This was a guy that, that created musical instruments and wrote many of the Psalms, and he would learn to worship and change the atmosphere of his life. Saul was, was possessed and afflicted by an evil spirit that the Lord sent to afflict him. And David would play worship music on his electric guitar, I mean his harp. 
and it would drive the evil spirit away. Pastor Frank, notice he didn't play the drums. Amen? Praise God. You got to pick on the drummers. But worship changes the atmosphere. I mean, if David's worship could change the atmosphere over Saul and drive a spirit away that the Lord sent to afflict Saul, come on. You and I need to learn to worship. Well, I can't sing. Well, this is not a concert. Amen? God doesn't care. God's not up in heaven going, oh, make it stop. Your, your worship is beautiful to him. He delights in it, amen? He's not going, uh, you know, you were a little pitchy right there, you know. That's Simon Cowell. That's not God. It's beautiful to him. Oh, praise and worship is a powerful thing. I've been sick at times, and, and sick in my body, fever. Come to church, worship the Lord, get up and preach, and when I was done, I was healed. Praise is a weapon. Praise is powerful. Praise will change the atmosphere of our lives. Praise will allow us to be filled and stay filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Acts 16, 24 through 26. Paul and Silas wound up in jail for preaching the gospel, and it was a bad place to be. Listen to this. And he, having received such a command, that's the jailer, threw them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What's that all about? Listen, this wasn't prison like we have prison with weight rooms and, you know, you know, cable TV and all of that stuff. This was like a cave, dungeon, pit. It put them in the, the lowest part of the prison. Why? Because these guys had to stay locked up or the jailer was dead. So he handcuffed their hands together and he put stocks on their feet and he threw them in the deepest, blackest part of the prison. In the dark, with the stench of human excrement and rats and water that's just pooling up in filth. Now, if you got sent to a place like that for doing something good, like preaching the gospel to people who needed to be saved, how would you feel? It says here, but in the midnight, Paul and Silas were complaining and trying to figure out what lawyer to use, and were considering quitting the ministry. Is that what it says? That's what we do. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns and praising God, and the prisoners were listening. Come on. In the dark, in the stench, beat up, chained up. They began to worship the Lord. And look what it says. And the other prisoners were listening. This is what I want you to get this morning. You and I, yeah, we need to walk in the spirit. We need to be filled with the spirit. But if we don't do that, the world is watching us. Remember, this whole series is about conduct. The other prisoners were listening. Man, these guys were beat. They're falsely accused. They're good guys. How are they going to respond to this injustice? My goodness, they're worshiping God. They sound thankful. They sound joyful. It's a huge witness to the world when you and I will respond to hardship with praise and worship. Come on. So they praise and worship in the midnight hour. And the prisoners were listening. Verse 26 says, and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Praise breaks the chains of bondage. Worship breaks through the darkness and lets the light flood in. Come on, you and I need to learn to be worshipers today, amen? You don't need wine. You don't need pills. You don't need a psychiatrist. You and I need more of the Holy Ghost today, amen? 
We're the most medicated generation in history. And more people are committing suicide every day. Our veterans are committing suicide every day. And you and I have the gospel and the truth and the hope and to teach them how to get filled with the Holy Spirit. If we'll be an example, you want to stay away from too much wine, get more of the Holy Ghost. You want more of the Holy Ghost in your life, learn to be a worshiper. Create the atmosphere, that atmosphere around you that allows you to flourish spiritually because you're a worshiper, even in dark places. Number two, the second thing from the text here that shows us how to get filled and stay filled with the Holy Spirit is this. It's cultivating a lifestyle of thanksgiving. Verse 20 is a powerful verse, yet, you know, a lot of people would read right past it. Always giving thanks for all things. Look at that, always and all. Always giving thanks for all things, not just when we feel like it or not just when we're overwhelmed or not when everything goes our way or not when there's no bad things happening in life. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So, listen, Getting filled and staying filled with the Holy Spirit requires a thankful heart. And here's the deal. You know what chases the Holy Spirit away from our lives more than anything else? Complaining. Complaining. Complaining chases. Listen, God brought the children of Israel out into the wilderness with ten plagues. He, he, he dealt with Pharaoh. He got them out of Egypt. They got into the desert. And what did they do? Complained about everything. I don't want to eat this. I don't want to eat that. How come we got to walk so much? And where's the bread? And where's the meat? And God in heaven was like, ah! Complaining drove him nuts. You remember what happened with the quail? We got manna, 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 manna sandwiches, manna casserole, manna this, manna that. Can we have some meat? God said, I'll give you meat. You have quail coming out of your ears and your nose by the time I'm done with you. (laughs) Complaining is one thing that grieves the Holy Spirit. And grieving the Holy Spirit doesn't allow us to stay filled with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean we're not saved, just means we're running on empty and now the things of the world look pretty attractive and uh, the intoxicants of the world become the remedy. It's not, it's, it's only possible to become thankful and appreciative if we'll stop lusting for more long enough to be grateful for what we have. See, and that's the trick of the world. That's the trick of the devil. Get them to lust for more, more, more. You need more. You need bigger. You need better. You, need, you got this. You got that. You got one car. You need two cars. You need three cars. You need a motorcycle. You need four wheel. You need more, more, more. You got a house. You need two houses. You need a summer house. You need a beach house. More, more, more. And, and people think, well, if I just get this, then I'll be happy. I'm, I'm getting chest pains just talking about this. And that's the mantra of the world, more, more, more. And, you know, we start complaining about the things we don't have because we're lusting for more. And we need to start to be thankful for what we've got. The cry of the world is more, more pleasure, more treasure, more convenience, more luxury, more comfort, more money, more power, more achievements, more. When is it enough? Blessed is the person who has enough and doesn't lust for any more. The great Russian author Leo Tolstoy wrote this story, and you may have heard it before, but it's worth hearing again, and it speaks to this idea of when is enough enough. And the the title of the story is How Much Land is Enough? 
there was a, success, a successful peasant farmer who was not satisfied with his success, and he wanted more in life. The farm, farmer wanted more of everything, Tolstoy said. One day, he received a novel offer. For a 1,000 rubles, he could buy all the land he could walk around in one day. The only catch was he had to be back at his starting point by sundown. Early the next morning, the farmer started out walking at a fast pace. By midday, though tired, he kept moving, covering more and more and more ground. Well into the afternoon, he realized his greed had taken him far away from the starting point. He quickened his pace, and as the sun began to sink low in the sky, he started to run, knowing that if he did not make it back to the starting point by sundown, his opportunity to become a wealthy landowner would be lost. As the sun began to sink below the horizon, he came within sight of the finish line, gasping for breath. His heart pounded. He called upon every bit of strength in his body, and he staggered across the finish line. As he did, he collapsed, blood flowing from his mouth. Within a few minutes, he was dead. His servants dug his grave later that night and forever answered the question, how much land is enough for a man? And the answer was about six feet long by three feet wide. How much is enough? Some of us are going to drive ourselves into an early grave lusting for more. <laughs> six feet. Man, I, I didn't make six feet. I'm pushing three feet wide, but praise God. You know, <laughs> six by three, Ernie, that's all I need. You can't take it with you. What you and I do for more. And instead, we could just be thankful for what we have and be grateful to God. I don't know about you, but I'm blessed more than I deserve. I have more than I deserve. Amen? Sometimes I'm embarrassed about what I have. My wife says, what do you want for your birth? What do you want? Nothing. Some of you are going, I'll take it. You get a little bit older in the Lord. Your body starts to, you know, go downhill a little bit. You realize I'm not going to be here forever. How much more do I need? Be thankful. Cultivate a lifestyle of thankfulness. Thankful people don't complain and chase the Holy Ghost away. Thankful people stay filled and get filled with the Holy Spirit and enjoy the blessing of God. Being thankful starts with learning to say thank you. Some people never say thank you. You could bend over backwards for them. You could give them your portion. You could, you know, and, and not even a thank you. Being thankful starts with learning to say thank you. Some of us need to learn to say thank you to certain people. <laughs> I believe our Heavenly Father is waiting for many of us to say thank you. I believe our Heavenly Father is waiting for a lot of us who are out there chasing more to just say thank you, Father, for how gracious you've been to me. Thank you, Father, for all the wonderful blessings you've blessed me with. To just be thankful for what we have. Thankful people stay filled with the Holy Spirit. They don't complain away their blessing. Thankful people stay filled with the Holy Spirit and don't need too much wine or too much of anything because God is more than enough. Let's bow our heads today. I want to give you an opportunity today if you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you say, Pastor, I can relate to everything you were saying here today. I've been chasing the wind. I've been chasing my tail. I've been trying to get more, and I'm never satisfied, and I'm sick and tired of it, and I'm exhausted. Well, praise God. It's a great day when we come to the end of ourselves. 
God gives us the opportunity to receive Christ and to be freed from our sin because really that's the empty hole in our heart. It's not things, it's not stuff. There's a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts that needs to be filled, and until it's filled, we're going to feel empty. You say, well, how do I fill that hole in my heart? The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Christ Jesus raised from the dead, we'd be saved. God sent Jesus, the Messiah, to die in our place, that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. He made it so simple. Just confess, I'm a sinner. Repent of your sin. Ask Jesus to be your Savior, and God would save you. So simple that multitudes of people miss it and try and earn salvation through works, and it's impossible. The only way we can come is to confess, to repent, and receive Christ. What will happen if I do that? He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. You won't need to fill yourself with anything else anymore. Listen, he'll write your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your destiny will be settled for eternity and you will be one of his children. If you want a clean slate and a fresh start this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to invite Jesus Christ into your life. How many people here today say, I want to take that step today? I'm just trusting we're all saved here today. Father, I just pray a prayer in this place, Lord, that if we're not ready to meet you, Holy Spirit, convict us and show us. Father, if we're in lifestyles that the Scripture says not to deceive ourselves, that we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I pray we would find a place of repentance over those things and become children of God. Father, I pray for those of us who have accepted you and do love you and are trusting Jesus to be uh, the, the payment for our sin. Father, help us to catch on fire so this dark generation could be drawn to the light of our passion for you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him praise today.